Section 2 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 1, Part 2. THE START FROM TEHERAN A slight drizzling rain is falling when the early riser of the company wakes up and peeps out at daybreak next morning, but it soon ceases, and by seven o'clock the ground is quite dry. The road for a mile or so is too lumpy to admit of mounting, as is frequently the case near a village, and my six companions accompany me to rideable ground. As I mount and wheel away, they wave hats and send up three ringing cheers and a tiger, hurrahs that roll across the grey Persian plain to the echoing hills. The strangest sound, perhaps, these grim old hills have ever echoed. Certainly they never before echoed an English cheer. And now, as my friends of the telegraph staff turn about and wend their way back to Tehran, is as good a time as any to mention briefly the manner in which these genial lightning-jerkers assisted to render my five months' sojourn in the Persian capital agreeable. But a few short hours after my arrival in Tehran, I was sought out by Messrs. Meyrick and North, who no longer learned of my intention to winter here. Then they extended a cordial invitation to join them in their already established bachelor's quarters, where four disconsolate halves of humanity were already messing harmoniously together. With them I took up quarters, and, under the liberal and wholesome gastronomic arrangements of the establishment, soon acquired my usual semi-embonpoint condition and recovered from that gaunt, hungry appearance that the hardships and scant fare of the journey from Constantinople had imparted. The house belonged to Mr. North, and he managed to give me a little room to myself for literary work, and, under the influence of a steady stream of letters and papers from friends and well-wishers in England and America, that snug little apartment, with a round, moon-like hole in the thick mud wall for a window, soon acquired the den-like aspect that seems inseparable from the occupation of distributing ink. Three native servants cooked for us, waited on us, turned up missing when wanted for anything particular, cheated us and each other, swore eternal honesty and fidelity to our faces, called us infidel dogs and pedar sags behind our backs, quarreled daily among themselves over their modocal, legitimate pickings and stealings, ten percent on everything passing through their hands, and meekly bore with any abuse bestowed gratuitously upon them, for an aggregate of one hundred and thirty kerans a month, and, of course, their modocal, some enterprising members of the colony had formed themselves into a club and imported a billiard table from england this also was installed in mr north's house and it furnished the means for many an hour of pleasant diversion like all persian houses the house was built around a square courtyard mr north had also a pair of small white bulldogs named respectively crib and swindle the last named animal furnished us with quite an exciting episode one february evening he had been acting rather strangely for two or three days 
We thought that one of the servants had been giving him a dose of bang in revenge for having worried his kitten, and that he would soon recover. But on this particular day, when out for a run with his owner, his strange behavior took the form of leaping impulsively at Mr. North, and, with seemingly wild frolic, seizing and shaking his garments. When Mr. North returned home, he took the precautionary measure of chaining him up in the yard. Shortly afterward, I came in from my customary evening walk, and, all unconscious of the change in his behavior, went up to him. With a half-playful, half-savage spring, he seized the leg of my trousers, and, with an evidently uncontrollable impulse, shook a piece clean out of it. He became gradually worse as the evening wore away. The wild expression of his eyes developed in an alarming manner. He would try to get at any person who showed himself, and he made night hideous with the fearful barking howl of a mad dog. Poor Swindle had gone mad, and I had had a narrow escape from being bitten. We lassoed him from opposite directions and dragged him outside and shot him. Swindle was a plucky little dog, and so was Crib. One day they chased a vagrant cat up onto the roof. Driven to desperation, the cat made a wild leap down into the courtyard, a distance of perhaps twenty feet. Without a moment's hesitation, both dogs sprang boldly after her, wrecking little of the distance to the ground and the possibility of broken bones. Sometimes the colony drives dull care and ennui away by indulging in private theatricals. This winter they organized an amateur company, called themselves the Tehran Bulbuls, and, with burnt cork faces and grotesque attire, they rehearsed and perfected themselves in Uncle Ebenezer's visit to New York, which, together with sundry duets, solos, choruses, etc., they proposed to give an entertainment for the benefit of the poor of the city. When the Shah returned from Europe, he was moved by what he had seen there to build a small theater. The theater was built, but nothing is ever done with it. The Tehran Bulbuls applied for its use to give their entertainment in, and the Shah was pleased to grant their request. The Mullahs raised objections. They said it would have a tendency to corrupt the morals of the Persians. Once, twice, the entertainment was postponed, but the Shah finally overruled the bigoted priest's objections, and Uncle Ebenezer's visit to New York was played twice in Nasreddin's little gilded theater a few days after I left, with great success. The first night, before the Shah and his nobles and the foreign ambassadors, and the second night before more common folk, the two postponements and my early departure prevented me from being on hand as prompter. The winter before, these dusky-faced bulbuls had performed before a Tehran audience, and one who was a member at that time tells an amusing story of the individual who acted as prompter on that occasion. One of the performers appeared on the stage sufficiently charged with stage fright to cause him to entirely forget his piece expecting every moment to get the cue from the prompter's box what was his horror to hear after waiting what probably seemed to him about an hour instead of the cue in a hoarse whisper that could be distinctly heard all over the room the comforting remark i say charlie i've lost the blooming place the american missionaries have a small chapel in tehran and on sunday morning we sometimes used to go 
the little congregation gathered there was composed of strange elements collected together from far-off places from colonel f the grizzled military adventurer now in the shah's service and who was also with maximilian in mexico to the young american lady who is said to have turned missionary and come broken-hearted to the distant east because her lover had died a few days before they were to be married they are an audience of people each with a more or less adventurous history it is perfectly natural that it should be so it is the irrepressible spirit of adventure that is either directly or indirectly responsible for their presence here half an hour after the echoes of the three cheers and the tiger have died away finds me wet-footed and engaged in fording a series of aggravating little streams that obstruct my path so frequently that to stop and shed one's footgear for each soon became an intolerable nuisance i should think i can lay claim without exaggeration to crossing fifty of these streams inside of ten miles a good-sized stream emerges from the elbers foothills after reaching the plain it follows no regular channel but spreads out like an open fan into a gradually widening area of small streams that play their part in irrigating a few scattering fields and gardens and are then lost in the sands of the desert to the south situated where it can derive the most benefit from these streams is the village of sherifabad and beyond sherifabad stretches a verdureless waste to ivan e kaif on this desert i sit down for a few minutes on one of those little mounds of stones piled up at intervals to mark the road when the trail is buried beneath the winter snows a green-turbaned descendant of the prophet bestriding a bay horse comes from the opposite direction stops dismounts squats down on his hams close by and proceeds to regale himself with bread and figs meanwhile casting fugitive glances at the bicycle Presently, he advances closer, gives me a handful of figs, squats down closer to the bicycle, and commences a searching investigation of its several parts. "'Where are you going?' he finally asks. "'Meshed. Where have you come from?' "'Teheran.' With that, he hands me another handful of figs, remounts his horse, and rides away without another word." inquisitiveness is seen almost bristling from the loose sleeves and flowing folds of his sky-blue gown but his overwhelming sense of his own holiness forbids him holding anything like a lengthy intercourse with an unhallowed ferengi and much as he would like to know everything about the bicycle he goes away without asking a single question about it shortly after parting company with the sanctimonious seyud i encounter a prosperous-looking party of dervishes some of them are mounted on excellent donkeys and for dervishes they look exceptionally flourishing and well-to-do as i ride slowly past they accost me with their customary huck ya huck and promise to pray allah for a safe journey to wherever i am going if i will only favor them with the necessary bakshish to command their good offices there are some stretches of very good road across this desert and I reach Ivan E. Cave near noon. There has been no drinkable water for a long distance, and, being thirsty, my first inquiry is for tea. There is a chai khan at the umbar, water cistern, yonder, I am told, and straightway proceed to the place pointed out. 
But Chai Khan Nice is the reply upon inquiring at the umbar. In this manner am I promptly initiated into one peculiarity of the people along this portion of the Meshed Pilgrim Road, a peculiarity that distinguishes them from the ordinary Persian as fully as the shaking of their heads for an affirmative reply does the people of the Maritza Valley from other people of the Balkan Peninsula. They will frequently ask you if you want a certain article, simply for the purpose of telling you they haven't got it. Whether this queer inconsistency comes of Simon pure inquisitiveness, to hear what one will say in reply, or whether they derive a certain amount of inquisitorial pleasure from raising a person's expectations, one moment, so as to witness his disappointment the next, is a question I prefer to leave to others. But more than once am I brought into contact with this peculiarity during the few brief hours I stay at Ivan E. Cave. It is not improbable that these people are merely carrying their ideas of politeness to the insane length of holding out the promise of what they think or ascertain one wants, knowing at the same time their inability to supply it. It is threatening rain as I pick my way through a mile or so of mud ruins, tumble-down walls, and crooked paths, leading from the umbar to the house of the Persian Telegraph G, who has been requested, from Tehran, to put me up, and, in view of the threatening aspect of the weather, I conclude to remain till morning. The English government has taken charge of the Tehran and Meshed Telegraph line during the delimitation of the Afghan and Turkestan boundary and besides guaranteeing the native telegraph g's their regular salary which is not always forthcoming from the persian government they pay them something extra in consequence of this the telegraph g's are at present very favorably disposed toward englishmen and mirza hassan readily tenders me the hospitality of the little mud office where he amuses himself daily clicking the keys of his instrument smoking kalyans drinking tea, and entertaining his guests. Mr. McIntyre and Mr. Stagno are somewhere between here and Meshed, inspecting and repairing the line for the English government, for they received it from the Persians in a wretched, tumble-down condition, and Mr. Gray, telegraphist for the Afghan Boundary Commission, is stationed temporarily at Meshed so that, thanks to the boundary troubles, I am pretty certain of meeting three Europeans on the first six hundred miles of my journey. Mirza Hassan is hospitable, and well-meaning, but like most Persians, he is slow about everything but asking questions. Being a telegraph G, he is, of course, a comparatively enlightened mortal, and, among other things, he is acquainted with the average Englishman's partiality for beer. One of the first questions he asks is whether I want any beer. It strikes me at once as a rather strange question to be asked in a Persian village, but, thinking he might perchance have had a bottle or two left here by one of the above-mentioned telegraph inspectors, I signify my willingness to sample a little. True to the peculiar inconsistency of his fellows, he replies, ob e nice beer, no. If he hasn't Obi-Jow, however, he has tea, and in about an hour after my arrival he produces the samovar, a bowl of sugar, and the tiny glasses in which tea is always served in Persia. 
visitors begin dropping in as usual, and, before long, hundreds of villagers are swarming about the telegraph Kana, anxious to see me ride. It is coming on to rain, but, in order to rid the telegraph office of the crowd, I take the bicycle out. Willing men carry both me and the bicycle across a stream that runs through the village to smooth ground on the opposite side, where I ride back and forth several times to the wild and boisterous delight of the entire population. In this manner, I succeed in ridding the telegraph office of the crowd, but there is no getting rid of the visitors. Everybody in the place who thinks himself a little better than the ragamuffin riots comes and squats on his hams in the little hut-like office, sips the telegraph G's sweetened tea, smokes his kalyans, and spends the afternoon in staring wonderingly at me and the bicycle. Having picked up a little Persian during the winter, I am able to talk with them and understand them, rather better than last season and, Persian-like, they ply me mercilessly with questions. Often, when someone asks a question of me, Mirza Hassan, as becomes a telegraphist and a person of profound erudition, thoughtfully saves me the trouble of replying by undertaking to furnish the desired information himself. One old mola wants to know how many farsakhs it is from avian Ikaif to Yengi-Donia, New World America. Ere I can frame a suitable reply, Mirza Hassan forestalls my intentions by answering, in a decisive tone of voice that admits of no appeal, Kaili. Kaili is a handy word that the Persians always fall back on when their knowledge of great numbers or long distances is vague and shadowy. It is an indefinite term, equivalent to our word many. Mirza Hassan does not know whether America is two hundred farsakhs away or two thousand, but he knows it to be Kaili farsakhs, and that is perfectly satisfactory to himself, and the white-turbaned questioner is perfectly satisfied with Kaili for an answer. A person from the New World is naturally a rara avis with the simple villagers of Ivan e Kaif, and their inquisitiveness concerning Yengi Donya and Yengi Donyans fairly runs riot, and shapes itself into all manner of questions. They want to know whether the people smoke kalyans and ride horses, real horses, not asps e ahans in Yengi Donya, and whether the Valiat smoked the kalyan with me at Haji Aga. Mirza Hassan explains about the Kalyan and horses. He enlightens his wondering auditors to the extent that Yengi Donyans smoke Nargiles and Chiboks instead of Kalyans, and he contemptuously pooh-poohs the idea of them keeping riding horses when they are clever enough to make iron horses that require nothing to eat or drink and no rest. About the question of the heir apparent smoking the Kalyan with me, he betrays as lively an interest as anybody in the room, but he maintains a discreet silence until I answer in the negative. When he surveys his guests with the air of one who pities their ignorance and says, Kalyan nice. A lusty-lunged youngster of about three summers has been interrupting the genial flow of conversation by making Rome howl in an adjoining room and Mirza Hassan fetches him in and consoles him with sundry lumps of sugar. The advent of the limpid-eyed toddler leads the thoughts and questions of the company into more domestic channels. 
after exhaustive questioning about my own affairs, Mirza Hassan, with more than praiseworthy frankness and becoming gravity, informs me that, besides the embryo telegraph G and sugar consumer in the room, he is the happy father of Yek Nim, one and a half others. I cast my eye around the room at this extraordinary announcement, expecting to find the company indulging in appreciative smiles, but every person in the room is as sober as a judge. Plainly, I am the only person present who regards the announcement as anything uncommon. After an ample supper of mutton pilau, Mirza Hassan proceeds to say his prayers, borrowing my compass to get the proper bearings for Mecca, which I have explained to him during the afternoon. With no little dismay, he discovers that, according to my explanations, he has for years been bobbing his head daily several degrees east of the holy city, and, like a sensible fellow, and a person who has become convinced of the infallibility of telegraph instruments, compasses, and kindred aids to the accomplishment of human ends, he now rectifies the mistake. Everybody along this route uses a praying stone a small cake of stone or hardened clay containing an inscription from the koran these praying stones are obtained from the sacred soil of meshed kum or kerbala and are placed in position on the ground in front of the kneeling devotee during his devotions so that instead of touching his forehead to the carpet or the common ground of his native village he can bring it in contact with the hallowed soil of one of these holy cities Distance lends enchantment to a holy place, and as to the efficacy of a prayer stone in the eyes of its owner, and they are valued highly or lightly according to the distance and the consequent holiness of the city they are brought from. For example, a Meshedi values a prayer stone from Kerbala, and a Kerbeli values one from Meshed, neither of them having much faith in the efficacy of one from his own city familiarity with sacred things apparently breeds doubts and indifference the prayer stone is reverently touched to lips cheeks and forehead at the finish of prayers and then carefully wrapped up and stowed away until praying time comes round again to a skeptical and perhaps irreverent observer these praying stones would seem to bear about the same relation to a pilgrimage to meshed or kerbala as a package of prepared sea salt does to a season at the seaside end of section two recording by william tomko